Last time we spoke about the incredible chaotic battle of the Coral Sea, which resulted in a tactical victory for Japan and a strategic victory for America. Then we finally brought the Philippine campaigns to a close as General Homa took Mindanao and the Rock, that being Corregidor. Now a bit further back, we were talking about the horrible situation in Burma, where the super friends of Britain, China, and America efficiently coordinated their efforts to repel the Japanese advance. Nope, it was completely the opposite. The Allies certainly could not stop stepping over rakes, and now they were literally scrambling to escape Burma, lest their forces become trapped and annihilated. And so today, we are going to be talking a bit about the fallout of Operation M.O., i.e. the cancelled invasion of Port Moresby, and the intense efforts by the Allies to flee from Burma to get to the safety of China or India. This episode is the escape from Burma. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just wanted to remind you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. And please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you are still hungry for some more history-related content, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I covered history going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s all the way to the end of the Pacific War in 1945 and even some historic movie reviews, such as my review on the 800. Check it out, it'll mean a lot to me. Even before the Battle of Coral Sea, Joseph Rochefort of Station Hypo had suspected that the Japanese were planning another major operation, in the Central Pacific possibly, aimed at Midway or even Hawaii. In early May, Allied listening posts noted a major surge of radio traffic coming out of Saipan, but not a peep out a truck, Japan's principal naval base in the South Pacific. That seemed to indicate a new offensive aimed directly across the Pacific, north of the equator, and not south. On May the 12th, Rochefort called Leighton. I've got something so hot here, it's burning the top of my desk. You'll have to come over and see it. It's not cut and dried, but it's hot. The man with the blue eyes will want to know your opinion of it. That message included a code group for Kuriaku Butai, invasion force, and another phrase meaning forthcoming campaign, both linked to a mysterious geographical designator, codenamed AF. As early as March, Rochefort postulated AF to be Midway. Midway, after all, was the only atoll large enough to support an air group. Others, such as Pilmera or Johnson Island, were thought to be too small, or not worth any major effort for. By the simple process of elimination, Midway seemed to be the most likely. Leighton agreed. We knew that A.H. was Oahu, 
and that AK was probably the French frigate Shoals. Now that the base supplies for an air unit were being readied for shipment into AF with the occupational forces, it had to be one of our island bases within striking distance of Pearl Harbor. Midway was the obvious target, since it was nearly 150 miles nearer to the Japanese on Wake than the alternative, Johnston Island. All of the deductions were sound, but none of it would matter unless Admiral Nimitz was convinced. They had no ironclad proof AF was Midway. Now Rochefort and Leyden had correctly foretold the Japanese invasion of Port Moresby, so they enjoyed the sink pack's full attention. In the month between the Coral Sea Battle and Midway, Admiral Nimitz would be called upon to make the most high-stakes decision in his 40-year naval career, and he was willing to risk everything based on the best estimations of his intelligence advisors. Yet despite that, Nimitz was not the ultimate authority. Behind Nimitz loomed Admiral King, who was quite anxious not to lose any more of the Navy's few remaining aircraft carriers, and was taking an active hand in choosing where and how to deploy them. Directly after the Battle of Coral Sea, King remained very uneasy about New Caledonia, Fiji, and the other island groups straddling the US-Australia Sea Link. Analytics at OP-20G, the Communications Intelligence Unit in Washington, fed Admiral King estimates that reinforced his belief that the Japanese would aim their heaviest blows in the South Pacific. The unit was fixated on a series of decrypted messages referring to a fleet rendezvous at Truk, and kept arguing that this rendezvous at Truk was going to occur, but believed it would not occur until the capture of Midway. Rochefort thought of their deductions. The amazing part of the whole thing was that many people could not accept this line of reasoning. We were quite impatient at Station Hypo that people in Washington could not agree with our rationale because they had the same information and should without any particular stress on their brains, have come up with the same answer. Many even suspected that the cryptoanalysts were being conned by the Japanese who were dispatching radio messages pointing towards Midway as a hoax. As General Marshall remarked, One Japanese unit gave Midway as its post office address, and that seemed a little bit too thick. Many army commanders were concerned about the safety of Oahu, and feared if Nimitz deployed too many air units to Midway, it would weaken Hawaii's air defense. Station Hypo and the Washington unit began a sort of feud, but in the end, Rochefort's team said they were certain AF was Midway, and that an attack would come in the first week of June. They had convinced Nimitz, but they still had no concrete evidence. Rochefort then had a great idea. He proposed a ruse. The local commander on Midway would be told to transmit a plain language radio broadcast back to Pearl Harbor reporting that Midway's desalination plant had broken down and that as a result the atoll was short of fresh water. And would you believe it? Soon a radio broadcast passed from the Imperial General Headquarters in Tokyo to the IGN Combined Fleet alerted them AF was short on fresh water. 
That message, by the way, was intercepted and broken down by Station Hypo and a cryptanalyst unit based in Melbourne, Australia. The ruse was an enormous success, and now they had the evidence proving AF was in fact Midway. Admiral Nimitz was under intense strain. Admiral Halsey's Task Force 16, built around Hornet and the Enterprise, had been sent south to provide support to Lexington and Yorktown during the Battle of Coral Sea. They had reached the waters of F-8 in the New Hybrids. Yet, if Rochefort and Leighton were correct, the Japanese were planning a huge offensive against Midway for the first week of June. Nimitz had to summon Halsey back from the South Pacific pronto. There was a problem. He did not have a free hand recalling the carriers, because Admiral King was not yet convinced of the Midway theory. How could Sync Pact defy Comanche? Well, on May the 16th, Nimitz threw the gauntlet down and he radioed Halsey while simultaneously cabling Admiral King the same day. Desire you proceed to Hawaiian area. The Japanese are going to mount an attack against Midway Oahu Line, probably involving an initial major landing attack against Midway, for which it is believed the enemy's main striking force will be employed. Later on, Admiral Nimitz would also write in his diary, Unless the enemy is using radio deception on a grand scale, we had a fairly good idea of his intentions. The order prompted Admiral King to call his advisors into his office for a thorough evaluation of the latest intelligence. The next morning, he wrote back to Nimitz, I have somewhat revised my estimate and now generally agree with you. The new offensive would be aimed at capturing Midway, and in the course of the campaign, the IGN would attempt to trap and destroy a substantial portion of the American Pacific Fleet. Admiral King agreed that the American carriers should be positioned to give battle, but added to Admiral Nimitz that they must not repeat, not allow our forces to accept such decisive action as it would be likely to incur heavy losses. And thus, the Battle of Midway was brewing. Now going back in time somewhat, Admiral Halsey's Task Force 16 had arrived in the South Seas too late for the Battle of Coral Sea. The radio informed him of the fate of Lexington, much to his shock. Many of the officers and crew craved revenge, and at first there was hope of hunting down the IGN as they were withdrawing from the Coral Sea. The task force had just delivered a marine fighter squadron to a fate on May the 11th, and now Task Force 16 was free to engage the enemy, who they believed was aiming for a new attack against the island east of the Solomons. The carriers Enterprise and Hornet cruised north along the 170th Meriden, conducting long-range searching to the west. By May the 16th, Nimitz recalled them and gave Halsey a your-eyes-only message, instructing him to take the task force in such a way to allow a Japanese patrol plane to see them heading north for Pearl Harbor. This was, of course, to lull the Japanese into believing that the road to Midway was clear and to deter any further near-term aggression in the South Pacific. Halsey did as he was asked, heading clearly under a search umbrella of Kawanishi planes. 
a Tulagi-based long-range patrol spotted Task Force 16 several hundred miles east of the Solomons, prompting Admiral Inoue to rule out any renewed efforts against Port Moresby before July. Only Admiral Halsey and a careful few senior officers knew what was going on. Most of the lower ranks and crew were furious and disgusted with what seemed to be a retreat. Robert Casey, aboard the Salt Lake City, thought, There's something fishy about this. With the task force racing north at 20 knots, it was obvious that they were hurrying home to Pearl Harbor, and it felt uncomfortably like a retreat. It seemed to us like craven cowardice. Now for the Japanese at this point, their air and naval forces had been badly mauled in the New Guinea region. The light aircraft carrier Shoho had been sunk, and the carrier Shokaku had been pretty badly damaged and was heading back to truck for repairs. And the carrier Zukaku had been crippled by its heavy amount of aircraft losses. Thus for the Japanese, the postponement of the invasion of Port Moresby was annoying, but knowing that Shokaku and Zuikaku would be unavailable for Operation MI was far more significant. They believed they had at least sunk both American carriers at the Battle Coral Sea. So the four Japanese carriers assigned for Operation MI had to be more than enough. Admiral Yamamoto was still rehearsing his desired invasion of Midway, and he was planning to support it with a surprise strike against the Aleutian Islands, aiming to divert the attention of the defenders and to neutralize the American air power in Alaska. It should go without saying now, Admiral Yamamoto really had a thing for making overly complex plans. Meanwhile, although the invasion of Port Moresby had been unsuccessful, Admiral Inoue approved the continuation of Operation RY, the planned invasion of Nauru and the Ocean Islands. These two islands were very important for the Japanese due to their richness in phosphate, a resource mined for making fertilizers, ammunition, and explosives. A small invasion fleet led by Admiral Shima built around the mine lair Okinoshima, which had been assembled to invade Tulagi, departed Rabal for a second time on May the 11th to escort a small naval detachment of around 400 men heading for Nauru. The operation was off to a terrible start when the Okinoshima was torpedoed by the American submarine S-42 while steaming off near New Ireland. The mine layer suffered enormous damage from the attack and eventually capsized in St. George's Channel. Shima had moved his flag to the destroyer Yuzuki, and after depth charging the enemy submarine, he continued onwards towards his objective. But as you will recall from the Battle of Coral Sea, Admiral Nimitz had sent all of their aircraft carriers to disrupt Operation M.O. Whereas Admiral Fletcher's carriers had quickly arrived and engaged the Japanese invasion fleet, the two carriers under Admiral Halsey had taken part in the Doolittle Raid, and they had just arrived in the area. Acting on the obtained intelligence about the planned Japanese invasion of Nauru, Nimitz directed Halsey to be spotted by Japanese patrols, and this coincidentally meant heading towards Nauru, which worked as a feint to stop the Japanese operation. When the Japanese patrols saw Task Force 16, this did not only result in pushing Operation Midway to go forward, it also pushed Admiral Inoue to call back Shima's fleet, and thus Operation RY was postponed. Now we are going to venture back to the intense situation in Burma. Now just to recap somewhat, 
General Aida had made a three-pronged offensive against central Burma in late March, employing four battle-hardened and fully equipped divisions. One of the most significant outcomes of the offensive began on March the 25th, when the 55th Division, led by Lieutenant General Tadashi Hanaya, and the 56th Division, led by Lieutenant General Yuzo Matsuyuma, smashed the defenders at the Battle of Tonggu. They hit them from the north, west, and south, giving General Dayalan only one way to retreat, over the upcountry bridge across the Sitang River, with a road leading towards Lashio. General Dayanlan had 8,000 troops, while the IGA were 15,000 strong. They had much better equipment to boot. Tonggu was shelled mercilessly. The Sitang Bridge was pulverized, not allowing for vehicles to cross over it. The advance of the brand new 22nd Division, led by Major General Liao Yao Xiang, came from the north to reduce the pressure on Dayanlan's forces, and he managed to divert a significant amount of the attention from the IGA. The battle raged between the 26th to the 28th, and the casualties racked up for both sides, with an estimated 2,000 for the Chinese and 5,000 for the IGA. In the typical defense-in-depth fashion strategy, Chiang Kai-shek ordered the 5th Army to withdraw on March the 29th, much to Stilwell's fury. Chiang Kai-shek had very good reasons for his decision, as explained by Lieutenant General Du Yunming, Chiang Kai-shek's protege, the 5th Army is our best army, because it is the only one which has field guns, and I cannot afford to risk those guns. If I lose them, the 5th Army will no longer be our best. General Dealan organized an orderly retreat across the Sitang River, and tracked northwards along its eastern bank. Next came the Battle of Yenangyuang, where Lieutenant General Slim, commanding the 1st Burmuk Division, Counterattacked Aida's 33rd Division using his Gurkha troops. Lieutenant General Slim would win an engagement at the Battle of Kokugawa, the only British victory in the whole of their ongoing retreat from Burma. Then Slim found his forces quickly encircled by the extremely fast moving IGA. Slim's 7,000 troops were stuck at Yanangyuang and they required rescue. Lieutenant General Alexander pleaded with General Lo Ying for help but Lo refused to even budge. This did not stop General Sun Lijian, who with just 1,100 men of the 113th Regiment rushed to the scene, and alongside Slim's 7th Armored Brigade, they fought. In the words of Lieutenant Gerald Fitzpatrick, who witnessed the scene, a spectacular show of superbly trained and drilled Chinese army moving like clockwork to the bogling and signaling of the boys and the calls of commanders. Most of the 1st Burma Division managed to escape the encirclement after a very long four days of combat. The 1st Burma Division lost 1,000 troops and had to make the long walk to cross the west bank of the Irwadi River by April the 30th. For his gallantry, General Sun Lijian received the ribbon of the Companion of the British Empire. Meanwhile, the CEF had to make a withdrawal to Hopong, due southeast of Mandalay, where General Dayanlan's 200th Division scored a minor victory, driving the Japanese out of the town of Hopong, during the Battle of Hopong Tangjian, from April the 20th to the 24th. Stilwell had a large hand to play in that operation, as he took personal command of the attack. General Slim noted of this, 
It was a magnificent achievement, only made possible by Stilwell's personal leadership with the very front units. One person who was not very happy about all this was Chiang Kai-shek, who considered Stilwell to be reckless and far too aggressive. Chiang Kai-shek was also bitterly disappointed with the British army in Burma's performance. Having failed to hold central Burma and now cut off from China, the only route left for the Burma Corps was to retreat west towards Manipur province of India. It was an epic fight to withdraw that almost saw a disaster at a place called Shuegin, which sits on the east bank of the Chindwin River. General Alexander was amazed at the speed of which the IGA forces led by Lieutenant General Sakurai could advance. Anyone seeing this track for the first time would find it difficult to imagine how a fully mechanized force could possibly move over it. Sakurai's speed was not altogether unrelated to the boot that he had received from the Japanese army chief of staff, who according to Sakurai's diary, had ordered him, Not one allied soldier is to get back to India. At Shuegian, most of the Burma Corps had managed to cross into the western bank of the Chinwin River by May the 9th, leaving only the 2nd Burma Brigade and the 48th Indian Brigade to defend the Shuigin Basin. The basin had an oval-shaped depression, approached through a gorge and fringed by almost vertical jungle-topped cliffs. From here, the British crossed the river into Kilawa. By the dawn of May the 10th, Sakurai's men caught up to the Allies and launched an assault against the southern lip of the basin, as troops were still being herded while they awaited boats to cross the Chinwin River. The Gurkhas, as General Slim noted, put in a very spirited counterattack. While swimming in the Chinwin River, Brigadier Mike Calvert would come face to face with an IGA officer, and the two of them engaged in hand to hand combat. Calvert killed the man, and he vomited. Later, he confessed that he, quote, had never felt so wretched before. In fact, this had been a fair fight. The Jap had asked for no quarter and would certainly have given none. I told myself all of this, but it did not help much. I felt like a murderer that afternoon. The Allied forces fiercely resisted while the last units crossed the river. By May the 12th, the two remaining battalions had successfully disengaged from the enemy and joined the rest of Slim's forces as they trekked to Kaba Valley. Having escaped across the Chinwin River, many British soldiers asked how they would get back to India. They were told, You walk, mate, or you die. It was a hundred and thirty miles of dusty paths that lay ahead. Well, until the rains came, that is. Then it would turn all the tracks into a muddy nightmare. For the Burma Corps, it was predictably appalling. The trek lasted two to three weeks with little to no provisions, nor shelter. As Captain John Randall recalled, We were often short of food and water. Lieutenant Fitzpatrick lost 46 pounds, almost a third of his body weight. In total, it was almost four months of constant retreat for the Burma Corps, until they would reach Impal in Manipur on May the 28th of 1942. The arrival was little better than the journey. 
Lieutenant Fitzpatrick complained that the conditions were, quote, uncomfortable, not only because it was raining hard, but because we had no shelter or unsoiled ground on which to lie. Thousands of people having previously occupied it with surprisingly primitive ideas for soldiers on the most rudimentary rules of sanitation. In a similar fashion, on May the 18th, Major Lyle Grant reached Kangratong B. His men were fortunate to have mosquito nets, but they were without ground sheets or blankets. It was indeed a cold and miserable reception to India. Despite the misery, General Slim took some consolation in the fact his soldiers kept rank and carried their weapons during the entire retreat. As he recalled, They might look like scarecrows, but they looked like soldiers too. On the other side of the coin, despite the fact the British had gotten away across the Chinwin River, General Aida noted with pleasure in his diary that upon occupying Kalawa, on May the 12th, they had counted 1,200 bodies, 2,000 vehicles, 110 tanks, and 40 guns. A hell of a haul. It goes without saying, despite the tenacity and the speed of the IGA forces, General Aida had absolutely no intentions of invading India, especially with the deadly monsoon season approaching. Meanwhile, the Chinese 6th Army was getting hammered along the Karen tribal states in the east as the Japanese forces advanced north through the Shan states to capture Lashio, cutting off General Sun's 38th Division from retreating back into China. IGA forces entered Lashio on April the 29th, finding over 10,000 tons of Lend-Lease supplies that could not be shipped in time to China. Alongside that, an estimated 40,000 tons of supplies would fall into the hands of the Japanese. Now, General Sun and the 38th Division had a 100-mile trek due north of Mandalay, and he decided he was going to cut west to make for the safety of India. The 55th IJ Division was hot on their heels, but the valiant rearguard efforts of the 113th Regiment allowed Sun's men to get west of the Chinwin River by May the 30th. The Chinese general would then bring his division intact through the Chin Hills and would safely arrive in Assam in early June. His forces would later be rearmed and trained to become Stilwell's X-Force. Despite their heroic efforts to save the British at Yan'an Yuang, the 38th was met with racism by the Assam governor Andrew Gorlay Klau, who wanted to disarm and confine the Chinese soldiers. Luckily, this was eventually stopped by General Wavell. The Chinese 200th Division had performed miracles at the Battle of Tonggu and the Battle of Hopang Tuangyi, ran out of luck as he made their hasty retreat to Yunnan province. The 200th Division departed Tuangyi on May the 6th, heading towards Mietkinya, as per Chiang Kai-shek's orders. But, in what would become their last battle of the Burma Campaign, which would occur on May the 23rd in what is called the Battle of Shipa Mogak Highway. Major General Dayanlan and his 200th Division found themselves completely surrounded by a Japanese armored force. Dayanlan was gravely wounded and his force was decisively defeated. 
Leaderless, the 200th Division survivors continued its retreat and managed to break through Japanese lines by June the 2nd. They crossed the Irrawaddy River and advanced northwards until they got to Mogang, where Major General Dan Lan would die of his wounds. From there, they continued in a northwestern direction to Yunnan and the Nuziang River. They reached Tenchong on June the 27th. Later, General Dayalan's coffin would be greeted by tens of thousands of mourners. He was buried in Quanzhou of Guangxi province. He was awarded the Legion of Merit, a U.S. military award given to soldiers with outstanding service on October the 29th of 1942 by the U.S. government for his contribution in the war against Japan, the first Chinese soldier to receive such an honor during World War II. When Chiang Kai-shek heard the news of General Anlan's death, he was full of grief, and he said to his secretary beside him, The Bushido spirit of the Japanese army should bow to the Wampua spirit of the Chinese army. Chiang Kai-shek would give a speech on the day of the memorial. Day, the old teacher, martyred for the country, Although his body died, his spirit will forever hang in the universe, and he is a model for Chinese soldiers. Mao Zedong likewise wrote an elegy poem for Dayalan. Standing in need of soldiers to bulwark against alien aggression, chanting the plucking roses, a general set off on an expedition. With his newly mechanized division, he fought bravely and brought the tiger and bear under subjugation. Bathing in blood in defense of Tonggu, the soldiers returned by the way of Tongyi after expelling the Japanese pirates in desperation. He even sacrificed his life on the battleground and eventually realized his lofty aspiration. For the 96th Division, the situation would become quite desperate. Against the advice of Brigadier John Bowman, the British liaison officer with the Chinese 5th Army, the 96th Division, having reached Hukumweng, from where the logical route would be to go to India, was led by its commander cross-country eastwards towards China's border. As Bowman reported, Doubtless, imagining he could loot sufficient food refused to take advice and continued on his way, began to run out of food along the refugee trail, robbed and looted everything it could, obtained from the refugees and completely cleaned out Suprabum and other villages. When complaints were reported by British officers to Major General Yu Xiao, the commander of the 96th Division, he coolly replied, Soldiers in every army rob and rape in the time of war. It is not surprising that some of my men conform to pattern. The depredations would cut both ways as the Kachins, an ethnic group who traditionally inhabit the Kachin Hills in northern Myanmar's Kachin state, sits just beside Yunnan province. Well, the Kachin people reportedly killed many Chinese soldiers for their actions. Combine that with disease and starvation, and the 96th Division lost approximately 75% of its strength. 
The retreat gave many British officers caught up in the chaos a chance to see the Chinese army much more closely. Captain Jack Bernard recalled one night hearing shots and a colleague calmed his alarm. It's not the Japs. It happens to be the Chinese. They're shooting any soldiers who are too badly wounded to continue the march. It's no use looking horrified about it. You'll just have to get used to the idea, because you'll be coming up against it regularly between here and Yunnan. The sanctity of life means very little in this part of the world. Discipline within the Chinese forces was often brutal. For example, if Chinese forces were caught smoking opium, they were shot on the spot. One Chinese lieutenant explains his actions after performing such an execution. Did not take life. Opium addict is already dead. Moral fiber, gone. Intellectual vigor, gone. Physical strength, gone. Army on a march cannot carry passengers. Centipede does not stop for a gamey leg. Now anyone listening who's watched or heard my personal channel's material knows I spent an extensive amount of time covering the two opium wars. The opium wars come off as a bit of a meme today, in the West for that matter, but by far and large, they are one of the most significant events in Chinese history. They kicked off what is now known as a century of humiliation, the very thing that created the China we see today. Stating that, if you are perhaps interested in learning about the first or very often forgotten second opium war, Check out my YouTube channel, The Pacific War Channel, where each episode is a jarring 45 minutes long. They were so long, I even made them simply in a podcast over at The Pacific War Channel on Podbean. I am done shamelessly plugging my stuff now, sorry folks. Life as a Chinese soldier was hard, to say the least. New recruits, often conscripts, were tied together with a rope until they arrived at base camps, where they were given three weeks training. The average Chinese soldier wore straw sandals, and many had to share a blanket with five other guys. Daily rations could be 25 ounces of rice with some pickled vegetables and salt, the bare bones minimum to keep a man going. Even the officers went hungry. When they received pay, it was often spent on food to keep the soldier alive. Disease such as dysentery, typhus, smallpox, and other horrible ones racked the infantry. Hygiene and medical care was rudimentary. Losses from desertion or death from disease and malnutrition could cause the depletion of 40% of an entire division each year, requiring 3,000 recruits for a single Chinese division. I myself specialize much more so in Japanese history, specifically Edo modern Japan, and I could drown you on with how the logistics and more importantly the issue of food uh, for the Japanese during the Pacific War was kind of the crux of their problems. Well, most of the time, especially on the islands. Hell, they even ran into this issue during the Russo-Japanese War. Many in the IGA were struck with beriberi because of malnutrition. I find it unbelievably similar upon reading some more recent accounts of the plight of the Chinese forces, notably those who ventured into Burma. People often forget how terribly important something like adequate food is to a military. If you don't have enough nutrition, you weaken. You're opening yourself up to many more diseases. It's like a domino effect from hell. 
Just ask the Japanese who will later be stationed in places like New Guinea, which they nicknamed Green Hell, or Guadalcanal, which was nicknamed Death Island by starvation. Anyways, the retreat to Yunnan of Major Yu Shao's 96th Division revealed another problem, corruption and brutality. Captain Oscar Milton found a dead Chinese soldier by a trail and noted the dead soldier was naked. I wonder if he was still alive when they stripped him. The brutes had left him nothing, not even his dignity as a soldier. These Chinese are inhuman, especially the officers. I've still to hear any officers address a friendly word to one of his men. Bernard responded, I imagine Yu Xiao will be drawing this poor chap's pay and rations until the end of the war. No reputable general would dream of putting in an accurate strength return. He automatically adds on 25%, lines his own pocket, and gives his officers a cash bonus, if they're lucky. If he's in a benevolent mood, he sometimes dishes out an extra bowl of rice to his grateful warriors. The retreat was brutal for the soldiers, but it was worse for the civilians who were also fleeing from the advancing Japanese. Thousands of civilians died by the roadsides fleeing east or west. Apart from disease and starvation, refugees also suffered from the brutality of hostile tribes, bandits, and, of course, the retreating soldiers. An 11-year-old Anglo-Burmese named Colin McFerrin, cousin to Ba Ma, had to flee with his mother, brother, and sister to Hukawing, China. Along the way, he was forced to abandon his mother to die by the roadside, while she urged him on. The world is full of good people. I know you will find them, and be well cared for, for the rest of your life. Son, you must walk on. Don't look back. Colin took his brother and sister in hand and kept moving. Colin's brother, named Robert, would die during the night and Colin would collapse. When Colin woke up, he was in a refugee camp in Ledo that had been set up by a Scottish tea planter. Colin weighed only 50 pounds. He had lost more than half of his body weight. His sister, who had also been rescued, died shortly after. Out of an estimated 600,000 refugees, as many as 100,000 died en route to safety. Many of them were robbed and killed. Lieutenant Pat Carmichael of the Indian Mountain Artillery recalled, We loathed the Burmans almost as much as we did the Japanese for their persistent treachery and murderous attacks on refugees. Lieutenant Gerald Fitzpatrick, during the retreat, would order 27 Burmans to be shot, supposedly for banditry, and giving the Japanese intelligence, lest you think all sides did not perform atrocities. War is an ugly thing. As bad as it was for everyone retreating, it was far, far worse for those caught by the Japanese. Indian soldiers caught were tied up and put in bamboo houses, doused with gasoline, and lit on fire. British officers were stripped, tied to trees, and used for bayonet practice. This sort of barbarity 
was reminiscent of previous brutalities seen by the Japanese during the conquest of Malaya. The retreat from Burma would have dire effects on Indian politics. The speed of the chaos of Britain's defeat undermined India's National Congress. Their belief in the ability of Britain to withstand the Japanese onslaught was waning. Taking advantage of the situation, Gandhi called for Britain to depart India immediately. It became such a crisis, Chiang Kai-shek himself, a fierce, very fierce opponent of Western influence in China, flew right over to India to talk to Gandhi personally, telling him that now was not the time to stir the pot, so to say. However, Gandhi was adamant that the war gave India the long-awaited opportunity to push for independence. Gandhi argued the British presence in India had given Japan an open invitation to invade her, and that, quote, Britain must abandon her hold on India. A British government mission, led by Sir Strafford Cripps, promised consideration of self-government for India after the war, something Britain had basically already said to India before the war. Gandhi had him and Nahru interned for the duration of the war. Luckily for the British, neither Indian leader went as far as Sabhas Chandra Bose, who organized the 30,000-strong Indian National Army on the side of Japan to liberate India. Meanwhile, back in Burma, Governor Reginald Dorman-Smith fled further north to Miet Kenya with the remains of the Burmese civil government. The fortunate few were airlifted there to India while tens of thousands of refugees perished in the long march through the Hukuang Valley and across the dense jungles of Patke mountain range. Some 8,616 personnel and 2,600 wounded would be flown out of Shwibo and Michikinya. General Sun's 38th Division had retreated along this route to get into India. General Stilwell finally arrived at Rumgar in Bihar, where he would take command over the Chinese there to form a new model Chinese army based on Western design. During the retreat, Stilwell proclaimed, God, if we can only get those 100,000 Chinese to India, we'll have something. Stilwell initially wanted to make a last stand with his troops in northern Burma, with Mitkinya as his new HQ but found that the Japanese were already well ahead of him at Bamo. By May the 5th, Stilwell decided there was no alternative than to flee to India. Stilwell also refused to be airlifted out of harm's way. So on May the 7th, he led on foot a 114-person strong party, including 18 American officers, 6 enlisted men, some stray British officers, 16 Chinese guards, an American missionary, 19 Burmese nurses, and several civilians. Altogether, they trekked across Burma's northern jungles for 140 miles to reach India. The day after their departure, the Japanese entered Mitkinya. Stilwell's party would travel over elephant trails, journeys downstream on rafts, at a very quick pace. It was quite an epic journey. Malaria and dysentery hit them hard. Food was also very hard to come by. As Stilwell noted, the hardships failed to stop the constant Christian singing by the Burmese nurses. One morning, Stilwell woke up to find a leech that had to be removed from his leg, stating, The big, bright green sucker was about eight inches long. 
The monsoons broke, making the 3,000-foot vertical descent into the Naga Valley a particularly treacherous one. Still well recalled, By the time we get out of here, many of you will hate my guts. But I'll tell you one thing, y'all get out. They would all arrive in Hamelin, India by May the 15th. Pretty incredible escapade for a 63-year-old three-star American general. One of his staff boasted, Hell, that was a picnic excursion for him. He's just made of steel wire, rubber, and concrete for guts. One person not so enamored by Stilwell was, of course, Chiang Kai-shek. He thought the man was completely harebrained. As the commander of his Chinese troops, he had abandoned them for a jungle frolic. Chiang Kai-shek fumed. Stilwell deserted our troops and left for India without my permission. Because of the battle, Stilwell's nerves must have given away. If the Burma campaign was bad for the British, it was much, much, much more worse for Chiang Kai-shek. The price for his alliance with the Americans was to send three of his best armies to Burma to help the British defend their colony against the Japanese. For his pains, he now had the 5th Army stranded in India, while the 66th was all but annihilated trying to flee to Kunming along the Burma road. Out of an estimated 100,000 men sent into Burma, an estimated 50% had been killed and most of their equipment was lost. It was a terribly heavy price for the Americans' offer to keep financing his war efforts against Japan. It goes without saying, Stilwell's loss of his precious armies naturally alarmed Chiang Kai-shek. Combine this with the terrible performance of the British, and you can imagine Chiang Kai-shek's confidence in the Allied war effort was dwindling. As for Stilwell, he told reporters in New Delhi, All retreats are ignominious as hell. I claim we got a hell of a beating. We got run out of Burma, and it was humiliating as hell. I think we ought to find out what caused it, go back and retake it. Stilwell's blunt honesty shocked American journalists, who were more used to the honeyed words of FDR and Churchill. Stilwell's tell-it-as-it-is style made for a lot of problems for his allies. His reports were so vicious about the Chinese and the British that General Marshall ordered all copies to be destroyed. Stilwell went as far as to accuse the British of deliberately losing the Burma campaign in order to weaken China. This seems to be a sign of mental instability, which would sour his relationship with Allied partners later on. An unintended consequence of the retreat to India was the diversion of 45,000 tons of supplies intended for China to be used to re-equip the new Chinese army in India. Stilwell saw a glimmer of hope, and it was found in the performance of the Chinese soldiers. He thought their commanding officers lacked qualities, but that the soldiers themselves had been a revelation for him. They showed grit that the British lacked. The resistance the Japanese saw against De Alain's 200th Division at Tonggu was the fiercest they had faced during the Burma campaign, and Su Li Jen's aggressive intervention at the Battle of Yanangyuan was just the kind of aggressive model Stilwell sought. 
Stilwell strongly believed that if the Chinese soldier were better fed, better paid, better trained, better equipped, he would be more than a match for the Japanese. It would be these men who would make up a force that he could use to reconquer Burma. If I can prove the Chinese soldier is as good as any Allied soldier, I'll die a happy man. About 13,000 of Britain's 25,000 troops emerged from the jungles of Burma after their 900-mile journey on foot after four months of fighting. The British suffered 10,036 casualties, of which 3,670 were dead. The Burmese army suffered 3,400 casualties. Only 2,000 soldiers were fit for further active duty, while 122 out of 150 artillery pieces had been abandoned. In essence, General Alexander had lost an entire army. It would take two years to replace it. Apart from the horrible weather conditions, the British army faced tropical disease, poisonous spiders, poisonous snakes, like the King Cobra and the Russell Viper. Hell, even giant pythons that could reach 18 feet long. General Slim, despite the hardships, observed, All of them, British, Indian, and Gurkha, were gaunt and ragged as scarecrows. Yet as they trudged behind their surviving officers in groups pitifully small, they still carried their arms and kept their ranks. They were still recognizable as fighting units. You really can't help but like General Slim. He had the extremely difficult task of turning morale around for all the troops. Defeated soldiers, in their own defense, have to protest that their adversary was something out of the ordinary, that he had all the advantages of preparation, equipment, and terrain, and that they themselves suffered from every corresponding handicap. The harder they have to run away, the more they must exaggerate the unfair superiority of the enemy. General Wavell, in one of his dispatches, admitted, More might have been done, in spite of all deficiencies, to place the country on a war footing. Political considerations, the climate, underestimation of the enemy, overestimation of the natural strength of the frontiers, the complacency of many years of freedom from external threat, all combined to prevent the defense problem being taken sufficiently seriously. For Lieutenant General Shajiro Aida, the conquest of Burma represented another feat of arms comparable with General Yamashita's taking of Malaya and Singapore. With an invasion force comprising four divisions, approximately 35,000 men, Aida had defeated a combined British-Chinese army three times larger. For a five-month campaign, from January to May, Aida managed to conquer a country 20% larger than Great Britain. It was the rapidity with which the Japanese were able to move their army that astounded the British commanders. The IGA were well supported by Obata's 5th Air Division. The Allies were never allowed to rest, regroup, or consolidate. Aida's forces constantly kept the Burma Corps on the move, and when counterattacks were made, they moved rapidly to encircle and trap their enemy. The Japanese believed in confining the enemy in close quarters so they could make better use of their 
Seishin, spiritual energy, and pure heart. Seishin would work wonders in the early months of the Pacific War, because Japanese troops were well-led, had good jungle tactics, and were trained to fight in conditions that were no more familiar to the Japanese than they were to British or Indians. The Japanese commanders gave relatively low importance to intelligence, believing that speed of closing would make up for deficiency in that area. In addition to weak intelligence, Japanese forces were hampered by poor communications equipment. While the 1932 Type 92 telephone, using a single wired connection carried by the soldier with a 600-yard spool, was fine for static engagement, faster-moving actions required radio. Even the newer radio sets for the Japanese were obsolete by Western standards. Some IJ units were issued AM sets, but none had the FM capability, and these sets were not waterproofed well. The most common sets were the Type 94s, that had been introduced in 1934. The 48-symbol Kana alphabet was used for Morse code. They used messenger dogs, carrier pigeons, as well as red, white, and green flares fired from grenade discharges. This disadvantage in communications will bite them in the ass later. For the Japanese, Lieutenant General Aida's Burma campaign must rate as one of the great feats of the Army of the 20th century. Lieutenant General Shoujo Sakurai's division marched and fought for 127 days. They fought over 34 battles over a span of 1,500 miles. Most of that was done on foot. Casualties were around 4,597. Aida had conquered a large Asian country and in the process defeated the British Empire, one of the world's acknowledged superpowers. The strategic goal of isolating and blockading China had been achieved. The Chinese allies were now completely cut off from Western supply. As Waffle noted, The loss of Burma had been, from a strategic point of view, our most serious reverse of the war. It had deprived our Chinese allies of a flow of munitions to continue their long resistance. It has exposed India to a serious threat of invasion, and it has had a disastrous effect on British prestige in the East. In Tokyo, the fall of Rangoon was greeted with pleasure even though it was drowned out by many other victories. Nevertheless, Privy Seal Kido noted on March the 9th, The Emperor was obviously delighted. I could only express congratulations. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you are still hungry for some more Pacific War content, please, go check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. It seems the victories simply do not end for the Empire of the Rising Sun. By kicking the British and Chinese out of Burma, the Japanese cut off the last leak of supplies to China through the Burma Road. How could China possibly survive without it? What can the Allies do to get supplies back to Chiang Kai-shek? <laughs>